Welcome to Unsupervised Learning, where we explore the models, patterns, and ideas that prepare you for what's coming next. In this standalone episode, we're doing a sponsored interview with Erkang Zong of Jupiter One. So Jupiter One is a special company to me. I just built a volume management program at Robinhood based around them. And I believe so much in their vision that I'm looking to actually become an advisor. I mention this because when I'm a fanboy for something like Apple or whatever, I want you to know that I'm fanboying for them and or that I have a relationship with them or that I could be pursuing one in the future. The interview here talks most about concepts, however, not so much about specific features, but I just wanted to mention my orientation of the company prior to starting. I'm speaking with Erkang Zong, who is the founder and CEO of the company. And as you can hear, we have a similar take on many of the problems currently in security. So with that, here's Erkang Zhang. All right, welcome to Unsupervised Learning. Um, I will have already introduced you, but can you tell us why you created Jupiter One? Yeah, of course, uh, Daniel. So it's great to be here, and uh, great to be working with you. Uh, you know, th throughout the the past year or so, and I, I created Jupiter One because of my almost kind of selfish need as a former CISO and security practitioner for for many many years. And I, I think you know we fundamentally uh, are not solving the basics very well at scale. And the basics being, how do we understand ourselves as an organization? How do we know what we have, what's important? And out of those that's important, does it have a problem and who can fix them? So these fundamental questions that we every every security team and every security program needs to answer, you know, for different purposes, whether it's for vulnerability management or whatever the case may be, is so foundational, but so hard to answer. And so hard to answer in a contextual way. And that's that's why I could do Jupiter One to address this specifically. Nice. And and what are some of those problems that you don't think are being addressed? Well, let's just take some use cases as an example. Okay, so vulnerability management. And this is uh, vulnerability management has existed uh, since the day that we have information security. And but it has evolved into, uh, you know, there's an army of different scanners, right? So you got 20 different scanners for infrastructure, for code, dynamic static, and you know, all those things. And we end up having hundreds of thousands and potentially millions of findings. And we look at you know, vulnerabilities from very much of a scanner-centric approach. And on the flip side, what we also let out of the hand is we have this you know, explosion of cyber assets and resources and things that you have to understand and you have to protect. Then what ends up happening is we are unable to connect the dots between those two things. And we're unable to understand across both of these things which ones are truly important because the contextual analysis is not there with this one degree connection right if just if all if you say that hey i have this thing or this resource or this device or this application and it has this finding that doesn't really tell you very much mm -hmm. right you have to be able to truly understand the business impact what does this application what does this code what does this server what does this workload actually mean for your business and then we can understand does this vulnerability finding actually matter, right? That's sort of the, the pain point we're trying to solve is understanding the context within the actual assets that you have. Yeah, and obviously I like this one a lot because this is the one we've been working on uh, together at um, Robinhood. 
Uh, we built a whole program around this product and it's, it's been fantastic. I think, um, what you're talking about is really smart there. Um, because the, the formula for risk is usually the asset times the vulnerability, right? How critical is the asset and how bad is the vulnerability? And a lot of people in the past, um, have focused on prioritizing the vulnerabilities and yeah. ranking them. Yeah. And using like threat intelligence to do that, but they're missing the other side of the equation because they don't have asset management. They don't. Exactly. Yeah. So you're kind of taking the opposite approach, starting with the assets, starting with that internal knowledge, and then just treating a vulnerability as just like a piece of metadata on top of the asset. That's exactly right. Right. That, that is an attribute. That is something about the asset. Right. And, and you know, and that's also an, an interesting point, because, you know, when you think about this term vulnerability management, and then, you know, uh, analysts love to throw new terms, you know, throughout the, the course of, uh, of, of the year, right? And there are new terms like um, posture management. Mm -hmm. You break that out to cloud security posture management, data security posture management, SaaS application security posture management, you know, and all of those posture management type of things. Now, at the end of the day, what are those? You know, a misconfiguration versus a finding that's identified by a scanner, hey, at the end of the day, I mean, are those the same things? Yeah. It's just, hey, there's something wrong, or there's some, some risk about this asset, right? So again, if you just take this asset-centric view and say, hey, what do I have? What's important? And does it have a problem? You know, it should be all-encompassing. Yeah. Yeah, because there's other stuff about that asset we might care about for different reasons. We don't necessarily know the reason, but we want to have as much of that data as possible for it, right? Exactly. Exactly. And then the challenge becomes, right? So then all of these challenges becomes a single challenge. A single challenge then is how can we aggregate all assets and all the information about the asset into one place? Yeah. So findings are essentially information about the assets, right? Then posture management is then essentially asset posture management of any asset, any attributes, any findings, any risk aggregated together. It's all asset centric. Yeah, that makes sense. And how do you actually do that work? Uh, obviously I know, but just uh, for, for the audience, how do we go about gathering that data? Yeah, and, and if you think about this, right? So it, it really is about building a knowledge graph behind the scenes. Right? Knowledge graph may be a, a too technical term, right? But um, it essentially is a way to connect the dots, right? So, you know, maybe you can think about this as a DNA sequencing of your digital organization, or you can think about this as having the Google Maps of your digital organization, right? So I think those two things you can, can, you can relate to, right? So you probably have, uh, you know, used those, right? Or heard of those in, in your just personal life and personal journey. And I, I look at a digital organization not so much different than the things that we have to deal with in physical worlds. Right? If you want to get to from A to B, right? If you you have to understand, you know, something about your say your human body, right? So you have to have this map to tell you that. Mm -hmm. So that's essentially what we, what we do, right? So so we uh, use APIs and automations and data ingestions to say, hey, let's put all of these data into one place, and from that one place we'll do the analysis and understand how things are connected, right? So how does a person connect to their digital identities? And if the person is a developer, how does that connect to the code? And how does the code connect to the infrastructure? And <clears throat> how does the infrastructure connect to data? 
and how does that connect to who has access to it or you know what's the network path is it internet exposed right so all of those things then becomes a connected map and the questions can be answered using that connected map yeah that makes sense and and you mentioned graph so you're using uh graph database on the back end um what what are the advantages of using that type of technology versus other types of database technology? Ah, that's that's a great question, right? So, the nature of the the graph database, or just in general, a graph data model, uh, is because the relationships are too complex, and they may be too dynamic, and uh, for a traditional relational database to handle. Right, the, the I just use some cloud providers as an example. The data model of the resources coming from AWS is very different than the data model that comes from Azure or GCP or Google uh, or uh, Oracle Cloud or you know whatever the case may be. Now, in order to m model that, right? So if you use a traditional database, you have to have a ton of predefined and pre-known schemas to understand that, and they they all look different. And then every time you add a new type of asset, or you let's just say AWS comes out with a new service, or Jupyter One decides to add a new integration with, say, Big ID or you know something else, then the data model changes, mm -hmm. and the data model changes, and 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 the the number of relationships expands, right? So we have, you know, uh, thousands of types of relationships that connects the dots across, and without a graph database. You just can't support that flexibility and the amount of changes that happen either because of the providers or because of the new data being ingested into this data model. Okay, so so basically, um, an older style database would basically just collapse uh, under the constant requirements of adding new different sources which have their own schemas. And then you would just be infinitely expanding and growing and changing yeah, this backend model. Exactly. You have to do schema modifications all the time. Yeah. All the time, right? And the other thing is then, you know, it's uh, uh, the, the nature of the graph, when you understand the data, is a traversal of the tree, right? So from one point to another. To another. And, and again, if you think about this and say, hey, if I have a vulnerability finding in this code, and I need to understand if this is actually exposed, right? You have to kind of walk the tree from the finding to the code to where it's deployed. To yes. the firewalls and the networks, and then to the internet, and then to the data storage, right? So, so when you when you start walking this tree, you you are you are looking for a very dynamic path that may or may not be there. Yes. Right. So, so that's the only way you can do it is to use a graph data model to represent this, so you can actually search and query for this very complex traversal. Yeah, th this is the thing that I I was most excited about because um, specifically doing attack surface management with this product. So we would have a vendor that's scanning us from the outside and finding tuples of port and IP. But then the next question is, because and, and, a lot of people could do that, they could scan themselves with Nmap and they have a list of ports and IPs. And then of course they have a whole bunch of infrastructure running behind the firewall or whatever. But how do you associate the two? That's the piece that's missing because nobody knows why that port is listening on that particular IP because they're not sure which box is associated with that IP, right? So you have to have some kind of data in there to link them all. And to your point about just the scale of it, you know, you got to use graph to be able to map those relationships. That's exactly right. And with graph, you can actually connect outside view to inside, right? So 
you know, in fact, uh, uh, you know, with Jupyter One, you can actually have the external ASM scan data enriched to the internal data. So you can connect the dots, right, and say, hey, like your example, right? So I have this port open on this IP, then, you know, we'll tell you, oh, is this an EC2 instance or is this a server in your closet, right? So what, what is this? Is this a user device? And is this even yours anymore? Because, you know, cloud is ephemeral, right? So yeah. by the time you do the scan, that IP may not be yours anymore. It could just be a workload that was, you know, short-lived for 60 seconds. Mm -hmm. So, so we, we are going to tell you all of those to connect the dots. And just also just think about this Google Maps, right? So you want to get from point A to point B. You know, it's very complex. There's so many different paths you can take, right? So that's why we have to represent the state in such a way and connect the dots both internally and externally. Yeah, and that gets into the real problem for vulnerability management, which is ownership, right? And now you really start to care about the metadata for these particular things because it's like, okay, there's a vulnerability in this code. That code belongs to this application. Where is the application running? So you have these open ports. Um, those open ports are associated with what server? Okay, what applications are running on that server? Who owns those applications? So when it comes time to actually fix things, who are you actually going to reach out to and contact? And normally this is handled through some you know treacherous cascade of Excel spreadsheets with, from different groups, and they're probably not talking to each other. Like this is a very human process, you know, Excel-related problem until you actually have something that links it all together which is why I was really excited about this. Um, and it worked really well for us for, for that exact reason. Um, being able to say these open ports on these IPs are actually running this application and we actually have an owner for that. Um, and here's how to contact them. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great point. And you know, ownership identification is a hard problem, right? So, yep. so fundamentally, you know, getting back to the basic, right? So there are really two very challenging basic questions. What do I have? Who owns them? Mm -hmm. Those are the two very basic questions that, you know, I, I think most complex organizations struggle with. Yes. And the ownership identification gets trickier because the data, you know, I, I have I have yet to see an organization that has perfect data hygiene. Yeah. And and then you're gonna you're gonna have to be able to derive and say, well, is there a direct owner associated with this resource? And most likely there may not be. Then we have to go figure out, well, what applications may be running on it? Does the application have an owner? Well, or what application provisioned this resource, right? Because it's infrastructure as code and all of those. Does that have an owner? And you know, and then if the application doesn't have an owner, then can we connect the dots to the code? Does the code have an owner? If the code doesn't have an owner, then now what? Then we yeah. can look at, you know, who was the last developers who made changes and created pull requests. Yep. So, so if we can, which now we do, we can, right? So with J1, that we can actually connect the dots all the way back. If you don't have an owner directly associated with the resource, we can actually figure out in an implied way, who is the closest owner to this resource? Right, so this goes back to the whole tree and the graph usage, right? So the only way to do this is to be able to walk the graph and then yeah. each each hop and say, does it have an owner? Does it have an owner, right? So we connect the dots across the board and find the closest owner to that resource. Yeah, and what we found that was really interesting is like, no matter what, you still have to intersect with this human problem of the process. Who's going to keep the thing updated, right? So if you have people leaving the company or joining the company, the owner for a particular thing could change. So how does that get updated? And what we ended up doing was we actually still had some sort of 
documentation inside the company where people were keeping that updated. But what we did was we did a regular parse of that source of truth and brought it into J1. So now it's permanently part of those uh, objects. And, and then all the queries were in J1. So we would, anytime we do a query, it was against J1, but there was still a human process that was required to keep updated to ingest continuously into J1. Um, and, and that's just, that's a human fact of life that we're not going to get away from anytime soon. You know, things change and, and people have to, if people aren't updating the source of truth, well, the fact that it's a source of truth doesn't matter anymore. Exactly. I, I think, I think you're hundred percent correct there, right? Because we, we are, we are not going to get to full automation anytime soon, you know, no matter how much we want it, right? There's a lot of, uh, these contact or these attributes or these information that are either in people's heads or stuck somewhere in a documentation, whether it's, uh, you know, spreadsheets or markdown documents or, you know, Gitbook or whatever the case may be. Right. So, but the point to your point, right? So if we combine that with the process, a process in place to then capture that into one place. Yes. So what you end up with is you then drive your questions and answers from one place. Then your source can be different, right? So ideally 80, 90% of that source is automated, the aggregation into one place. But then the last mile, you have to enrich that with some manual data. Yeah. And we actually had another example of this, um, that I've seen as well, which is, uh, control data. So where do you have uh, security controls on particular things? Like, um, so imagine a, a complete control project that says, okay, for these crown jewels, what are the protections that we're actually doing on those? And then have some external process that's involved in gathering all that data and putting it somewhere. And once again, once you get it into that place and then you get everyone to update it there, now that's continuously ingested into J1. So when you run a query, you could say, show me everything that's internet facing that's also critical that lacks these essential controls because those are the ones that are vulnerable to this particular type of attack makes a lot of sense yeah i'm, I'm glad that uh, you you are leveraging that uh, use case yeah what other uh, teams is it only security teams that you're seeing using this or is it like broader it teams um how often are you getting the question of like hey wait a minute can we use this for everything you know, we, we get, I could get that quite a bit. And of course, uh, as a company, we, we focus more on the uh, cybersecurity use cases. You know, just within cybersecurity, there's there's a lot that could cover. Right? So I'll give you two examples. One within cybersecurity that's outside of the, the uh, vulnerability and the, and the governance space. And then I'll give you another that's outside security. So I have um, heard some of our customers actually use the graph of Jupyter One to uh, help their pen testing and red team exercises mm. so that the reconnaissance is done using the knowledge graph in a much faster, simpler way for the you know, white hat attackers and hackers to understand where to focus on, where to pinpoint and simulate the attack. Okay, so you're saying if it's all uploaded into J1 or, or some other database, if it's all in one place, then you can kind of just dig in there and, and find the nasty stuff and formulate a really good attack. Yeah, you essentially have a threat model that is based on real data. Mm. You see the boundaries, right? You can see the potential weakest points, right? You can see the you know identity and access connections, right? You can see all of those by writing different queries and asking different questions and seeing different dashboards on top of the graph. Yeah, so... That's a good point about the question. So, um, 
this is one of the things that really excited me about the questions, because uh, this is the way I approach any uh, security program that I'm setting up, is to basically start with a set of questions, and then uh, go from that set of questions and say, okay, how can whatever tech that we're using, how can it help us answer these? So I remember coming to your team and basically being like, okay, so here's my set of questions. And um, I would like to find a way to translate these into your technology. And you're like, okay, yeah, go to the questions section. And it's actually, um, and I'm like, oh, you named it questions? Did somebody on my team help you with that? And you're like, no, that's what we called it because we think about things the same way. And I think that's amazing because if you start with a set of questions that you care the most about for your entire security program, and then you just build the answers using the data that you have to collect to be able to answer that question correctly, and then you continuously do that, that is a really solid foundation for a security program. Absolutely, right? So, and and I uh, I think you and I think very much alike in this, right? So, and, you know, to, to me, all the things that we are doing, whether it's on a day-to-day -day basis, or, you know, even for compliance and when the auditor comes, is essentially a set of questions. And a lot of times those are the same questions asked by maybe different people at different time, maybe in a slightly different way, yep. but the answers are all in the data in the assets, in the configurations, in the attributes. So we can just frame it this way, and then you go ask the questions. Yeah, absolutely. So what, what are the some of the things you wish you were doing better uh, that you would like to improve on or that you're working on improving? So on the on, on the product side, right, so we, we definitely are uh, improving more kind of proactive analysis so that we can uh, tell the users out of the box where you should focus on and using you know machine learnings and you know even some just expert rules right to to guide people to where to focus on and this way it creates a more out of the box experience for people who may not be strong security engineers or analysts that want to uh, dive deep into their own questions and problems on day one mm. yeah that makes sense i, I could see that being an issue for our team, I don't think it was because we had a really strong idea coming into it, but I could see some pre-made templates for a set of similar questions could be really useful. That's right. And and which actually we have already uh, made a lot of improvements uh, recently, right? So we have out-of-the-box assessments, out-of-the-box dashboards uh, that are now just pre-populated, right? You can go look at them and you can go tweak them. So the goal really is to combine a uh, polished out-of-the-box experience with unlimited flexibility that you can extend, you can write your own, you can do your own things for the power users. Very cool. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, right, so because, you know, you, you asked about, you know, what, what about outside of security, right? So a couple of questions ago, and that's exactly what we allow people to do on your own, right? So if you say, I have a SRE use case, mm -hmm. right? So I'll give you one example. We do this today, right? So Jupyter One is serverless, right? So we run you know, lambdas and containers and ECS uh, and, you know, short-lived tasks and so on and so forth. Now, sometimes those container tasks run too long. So we just set up a query in J1 and say, hey, uh, show me the ECS tasks that have been running for more than 24 hours. Mm -hmm. And we will alert on that and, and, and post that to a Slack channel for the SRE teams to kill them off mm -hmm. or trigger a script to kill them off. Yeah. So that, that's a now security use case, but it's again, right? So it's just data from your infrastructure. I, I just love this so much. Uh, we always talk about this whenever we talk, but <clears throat> the idea that every group is really a set of questions. Okay. If you're, you're an IT team, you're a, uh, 
detection and response team. You're a SOC. You've just got a different set of questions, right? You're building vulnerability management. It's a different set of questions, right? And then you have a project like J1. It's able to answer a certain super set of questions. And now it's a matter of matching those and having more and more difficult questions that are more and more complex and getting better and better data so you can answer those as well. Exactly. And there's one, one other thing I, I would highlight, right? So which is once you, let's just say there's a new question that you haven't asked before and, and you, you thought about it and you ask the question, you save it, and then you can come back and ask that same question over and over again with you know, no effort. You can even schedule that, right? So the system can ask this question over and over again on your behalf and identify if the result should do something, trigger some action or whatnot. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's a great point. That's that's exactly how we were using it. And and I come from my, my favorite space is the attack surface space. And that's the way I think about it is like, ask this question consistently every 15 minutes. The answer is ever yes, send an alert at this alert level. Yeah. And the reason why is because the question was something like, is there a um, medium or higher vulnerability facing the internet that's also on a crown jewel system, right? That results in the following query. So it's a question associated with a query, which of course is associated with a reaction. Yeah, yeah. And what's, what's interesting about that, right, is you can see that the question that you're asking is contextual so that you don't get a bunch of noise. Mm -hmm. So the answers will take into the, the, the relationships to give you the context. So the answer is not noisy, right? You get much less false positives in that way. Yes. Well, this, is a, this has been a great conversation. Uh, where can we learn more about uh, Jupyter One? Now, of course, go to the website, jupyterone.com. And also, I'll give you another uh, link to, to go to. Ask J1, J and the letter one, um, the number one, uh, dot com forward slash questions, right? So uh, that would give you a preview of all of those questions that you can ask and answer. Very cool. And you have a, a, an open source version of the project as well. Is that right? That's true. It's called Starbase. Starbase. And this allows people to just get, get a feel for the graph database. Uh, yeah, you, well? can, you can play with it and it's, uh, uh, you know, it runs on Neo4j. Or you can, you know, if that's too much, too much work, you go simply sign up for a free tier, right? So uh, that, that's uh, free forever, no credit card required, right? You can, you can try that as well. Very cool. Well, thanks so much for uh, taking the time and uh, we'll talk to you soon. Of course. Thank you, Daniel. Unsupervised Learning is produced and edited by Daniel Meisler on a Neumann U87 AI microphone using Hindenburg. Intro and outro music is by Zombie with a Y. And to get the text and links from this episode, sign up for the newsletter version of the show at danielmeisler.com newsletter. We'll see you next time.